Morning, everyone. As Sarah said, my name is Johnny. I work for Moreland's Bible College, equipping people passionate about Jesus uh, to make an impact in the world. And I've been part of the Coastline family for about a year or so, and genuinely just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you to everyone who I've met so far and been able to uh, be in community with, my life group, they're awesome. Uh, and just want to thank you for the welcome uh, that you've given me over this past year. Uh, genuinely loved it. Uh, it's been fantastic. I want to share a little bit uh, of a story this morning to start, uh, because whilst it is an absolute honor to speak here, it's even more of an honor and more of a rare honor uh, to be asked to speak on whatever I want. Uh, And so I thought I would speak on my favorite passages of the Bible. But before we get there, I want to share a little bit of a story that might give you a bit of an insight into who I am, um, because for many of you, I'm probably a new face. uh, And I think it's only right that after Sarah really bigs me up that I share actually what a bit of an idiot I am. Um, So the story revolves uh, around the fast food. I say fast food, I think it's more than that, chain restaurant that says the lovely Japanese cuisine, Wagamama's. We all love a bit of Wagamama's. If you like a bit of katsu curry or a beef, uh, beef brisket ramen, God, that's a tongue twister, isn't it? Um, Wagamama's is your way to go. Absolutely brilliant. Went to Wagamama's a lot, and the thing that I loved most about Wagamama's for the purpose of this story is that the lovely free green tea that you get in the lovely little green tea mugs, people are nodding their heads, you know the mugs, they're brilliant. They're just thick enough, uh, they're just thick enough that it doesn't burn your hand, but it warms it. It's like giving your hand a hug, and they're brilliant. And they're all kind of like individually designed and really lovely and beautifully textured, and I thought, I kind of want these Wagamama's mugs. And so I thought what I would start doing is I would start asking when I went to Wagamama's if I could keep the mugs. Because I went online and searched how much they were and I was like, a bit too expensive and I'm a bit of a cheapskate. So I thought I'd just start asking for some Wagamama's mugs. And so I went to Wagamama's and every time it would come to the end of the the meal and I went, hey, I just really like these mugs. They're lovely mugs. Do you mind if I take one home? And every time they would say, no. (laughs) But undeterred, I thought maybe it's just sort of a a lesson in rejection, as if my face didn't do that already. Uh, So I thought what I would do is I would keep on asking if I could keep the Wang and Bumbers mugs. And one time, I went to uh, a branch in Ipswich, where I'm from, uh, and I said, I really like these Wang and Bumbers mugs, they're really lovely mugs. Would you mind if I kept one of the Wang and Bumbers mugs? And this waitress looks at me and she goes, are you the one who keeps on stealing our Wang and Bumbers mugs? And I went, no, 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 I never steal. I always ask. And she goes, and no one's ever given you one? I went, no. And she goes, wait here. And so she comes back and she brings two Wagamama's mugs. Thank you. Mission complete, I thought. And it was kind of like, whoa, thank you. And it was like that awkward moment of like, oh, I really am cheap. And so, you know, and then the, like, the, the card really comes around. It's like, do you want a tip? And I'm like, yeah, I probably should. And it's kind of awkward, but it's lovely. And I got the Wagamama's mugs. Mission complete. So I went back to Wagamama's, and uh, I thought, mission complete, it's great, whatever. And on the way out, I was with my friend Pete, and this waitress sees us, and on the way out, she goes, you're those boys I gave those Wagamama's mugs to. I went, yep. And she goes, what am I getting you this time? <laughs> and I thought she was joking, so I was like, oh, the, the ramen spoons are nice, and, and like a drug deal out of a movie. Two ramen spoons, two ramen spoons. And again, it was like awkward, like, oh, <laughs> thank you, wasn't expecting that, but very nice, thank you, kind, like, you know, add the tip, and then you can walk out. Uh, and so I went back to Wagamama's, and she comes over, the same waitress, Nicole, I got her name this time, she goes, what am I getting you this time? And I went, Nicole, I really don't want to get you fired. And she was like, no one can manage me. And I went, anything between a plate and a bowl. And so two ramen bowls I was given. 
two ramen bowls. That was, and basically the game went on. And since then, in various different branches, I've got a big bowl, I've got two small plates. Uh, that was pretty good. I got uh, a Wagamama's cookbook to the price of 20 pounds. That was very good. And my favorite, the penny resistance, was a wok, a full wok from Wagamama's. Now, I've shared that story with a few people I know, and they're like, Johnny, you have no shame. And I'm like, I know. And they're like, is it not awkward when you ask just for random crockery? And I'm like, you wait until I start my assault on ZZ's. <laughs> Unbelievable crockery. But for me, the awkward part genuinely isn't asking. It's kind of the moment where they actually give it to you, because you realize kind of how outrageous the ask was, partly. But also, it's just kind of awkward. When someone gives you something that really isn't expected and is kind of out of the ordinary, there is something awkward around that. And kindness kind of is awkward. We don't really associate kindness with awkwardness, but that's kind of what it is associated with. And I don't mean the kind of kindness where people kind of like repays you something or does something that you'd kind of expect them to do that's kind of nice. I mean the going out of your way, doing something that is out of the ordinary to help you and make your life better. There's something disarming about that. There's something awkward around that where you can't really repay it, where you don't really know how to act, and it's like, oh, thank you so much. And, and you sort of get your words in a model because it's kind of disarming. I know people where their self-esteem is kind of so low that if you were to give them like a chocolate bar, they wouldn't know what to do with it. They're like, they don't know how to do it. They haven't got that kind of encouragement that they've received before. But that's what kindness does. It's disarming. I was at a stag do uh, just a couple of days ago on Thursday uh, with uh, my friend Jamie. Jamie is my girlfriend's brother, which has the potential for kind of, you know, an interesting relationship. Um, but Jamie is like one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Just so kind, so welcoming, so inclusive. Uh, just brings people together. Um, it's partly that he's taller than me and also runs a gym. So that gives you the idea of how I want to kind of impress this guy. Um, but Jamie Invited, uh, invited these guys together, and stag do's tend to have a reputation for kind of belittling the groom, for making them feel small and, and dressing them up weirdly and pushing them to do stupid challenges. But this one just started different. His best men got everyone around together in a circle, and they said, hey, before you know, we dig into the barbecue and before we play golf and before we play you know, table tennis and all this stuff, we just want to spend like half an hour just sharing what we love about Jamie. And we all just sort of sat in a circle, and, and people were like, Jamie, like, do you realize that my life is different because of the influence you've had on me? Like, do you realize the community that I now own because you were the person who invited me? Uh, and then other people have been like, Jamie, do you realize the leader that you are? You know, the, the kind of guy that everyone wants to follow into battle, the, the fact that you seem to just to draw these people in, and, and you could sort of see him, it's Jamie there, and, you know, it's like, how do you sit when people are saying nice things? And then his dad spoke up and said, Jamie, like, we're just so proud of you. Like, we're so glad that we get to call you a son. And then his father, future father-in-law said, Jamie, do you realize how much we approve of you? And I've been kind of lucky enough to be in those situations where people say nice things to me too. And, and I kind of looked at Jamie and I related because in those moments you kind of sit there and you don't really know how to sit and you, and you kind of squirm inside. But at the same time, there's nothing more uplifting because that's what kindness does. Not the repaying kind of kindness. Not the kindness with an agenda behind it. But those raw, unfiltered, I want your life to be better kind of kindnesses. Kindness is love's arm. It's the active arm of, uh, of love is kindness. It's love's conduct. 
It's, it exists humble and unassumed, and yet when it raises its head, the words that can be described to describe the actions of kindness, often we don't have words that can give it justice. It cuts through pretense. It gives authenticity to the actions that we want to give and to the words that we want to give. It untwists warped uh, attitudes. When revealed, it says something around who we are and, and, and how we're not just the sum of ourselves, but also the sum of others too. Kindness is not just nice. Kindness is awesome. Kindness, whilst not random, can be spontaneous, but it's the active taking of myself, giving to someone else at the expense of myself. Scientifically speaking, um, studies have been done to show that kindness literally raises your level of peace, takes down levels of anxiety, and increases chemicals associated with friendship, joy, and trust. Not only in the person receiving the kindness, but in the person giving it. Kindness literally grows exponentially. Kindness is awesome. And yet, isn't it weird? For me, when I asked this question, I was like, when was the last time I made kindness my goal? For me, I kind of think that kindness, we relegate to a position, kind of unknowingly, to a place where actually it doesn't belong, almost to a degree of not being nasty. Despite kindness perhaps being responsible for some of the most life-giving, uh, life-changing elements and moments in our lives, often when we think of kindness, it's not being nasty. Think about how we speak to children when they do something that's nasty and not okay. We crouch down and we say, that wasn't very kind. And it's almost like kindness is on a spectrum between neutral and nice. Uh, when we think of the Be Kind movement on Twitter a few years ago after the death of Caroline Flack, it was like one of those moments where, you know, the idea of being kind surely is this active giving, this awesome moment of, I want to bestow something on you, and yet in reality it was just this mission to get people to stop writing nasty things. When was the last time we woke up saying, how can I make kindness my goal? Who is there that I can show kindness to? Kindness is amazing, and it's free. And yet when we look at the New Testament writers, uh, groups of men who, who saw something and experienced something so extraordinary, so good, so phenomenal, that they had to write it down and had to instruct churches on how to live as a result of it, who would die as a result of their testimony, understood that at the center of their faith was an event and a power, not an attribute, a power that would ultimately have kindness at its heart. Uh, one of the passages that we see uh, here is um, written by a guy called Paul. He writes to a letter to Galatians, one of the most famous passages that you'll find in the New Testament. And as Paul is writing to this church, which is kind of on the crossroads of trying to work out its identity, to find out who it is, he says, listen, this death and resurrection of this man, Jesus, when you come and follow him, you are bestowed with the personal presence of God. His Holy Spirit besto is bestowed on you. And as a result, there are attributes that you find flow from you, more than attributes, power that flows from you. And this is what it is. He says the Holy Spirit gives these fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Kindness being smack bang in the middle. And I kind of think those, those powers all stem from love in one way or another. Joy is love dancing. Peace is love resting. Patience is love waiting. Kindness is love doing. Goodness is love producing. Faithfulness is love unrelenting. Gentleness is love caring. And self-control is love deliberately doing. That's what love is. And kindness is right in the middle. Kindness is smack bang in the middle. Joy is love's expression. Peace is love's presence. Patience is love's uh, discernment. Goodness is love's ethic. Faithfulness is love's position. 
Self-control is love's discipline. Gentleness is love's approach. Kindness is love in action. It's where it belongs. And the New Testament writers were saying, listen, church, you are going to be known for a whole bunch of different things. They may laugh at your belief. They may disagree with your theology. They may be off-put by your traditions. But if there is one thing that you are going to be identified as, it's going to be these things. It's going to be kindness. These things are things that nobody should be able to look at you and, and kind of undermine. These are the things that you're going to be known by. Not because it's a matter of what you do matters, or not because of what you do earns it, but actually it's a reflection of a God who decided to bestow his character upon you. It's a reflection of who God is. And we find this, I think, in in my favorite Old Testament story in 2 Samuel chapter 9, where we read of the story of King David. Now, King David has one of those awesome stories. You can read it, and when you read 1 and 2 Samuel, it's literally like reading something off HBO. It's amazing. But uh, the story of David starts with one of those amazing archetypal stories of David versus Goliath, and he kind of takes down the giant, and he becomes everyone's favorite. And there's an existing king called Saul who bends everything in towards himself at the expense of everyone else. And eventually, the priest Samuel comes to David and he says, hey, God is anointing you as king. And Saul, understandably, maybe, uh, gets a little bit threatened by that and chases David and his friends, including um, uh, Saul's own son, Jonathan. He chases David out into the wilderness, and David, with help of Jonathan, escapes until eventually Saul dies and David is anointed king. And David, at this point, has everything going for him. Like, everything going for him. Like, he has this string of military victories, and then the land is at peace because his enemies have kind of been put down. He has this almost, like, unlimited wealth. He's got, you know, he's sitting there in his palace. Everything is as he wants it. No one can do anything for David because he has everything that he needs. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 9 kind of this story that kind of sticks out because it doesn't really flow with all the other rest of the stories. It kind of exists by itself, but David's in his palace, and the story goes like this. It's going to come up on the screen. One day, David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? And you can imagine kind of like his advisors kind of looking at him being like, What? Like, Saul's family? Like, the guy who was trying to kill you? The guy whose descendants might even have a claim to the throne? That guy? That guy who chased you out to the wilderness? And it's like, yeah, Saul's family. Anyone who I can show kindness to? And so the story continues. If we can have it on the screen. If it's on the way. He summoned a man called Ziba, which is the best name in the Bible, if you ask me, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba, he asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? I want to show God's kindness to them. Intention, not accident, not random. Hey, I'm set on this. Zebra replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons still alive, and he's, he's crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. In Lodibar, Zeba told him, at the home of Machir, son of Emil. Now, Lodabar, by the way, means nowhere. If you were to actually get the translation, it literally means nothing. It's like, here's this guy who can offer nothing with nothing, who comes from nowhere. This guy is bottom of the pile. And so David sent for him and bought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deepest respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth replied, I'm your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show you kindness because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. 
I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather Saul, which is, by the way, everything. And you will eat here and be with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant? Who is your servant that you should show kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Zeba, and he said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and produce from your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. You see, when I read this, for me, it was like my vision of who God was. It just kind of went from here to here. And we get to the end of the story, but that's kind of more detail if you want to read it. My image of who God was kind of just went from here to here. Because when I imagine who God is, I kind of imagine approaching, uh, approaching God's temple, and it's like this massive temple, and I kind of crawl up to like the big toe of God. And there's kind of like this big, deep, booming voice, and it's this overbearing God waiting for me to slip up, kind of standing in the corner, pointing in the right direction from afar. A God who kind of likes, uh, loves me but doesn't really like me. A God who kind of rolls his eyes when I do the wrong thing again. And yet here I find in this story that God's saying, listen, this is the kind of king that I want to partner with and bless because it's a reflection of the kind of king that I am. It's the kind of king that says, you can offer me nothing, but purely for the sake of kindness, I'm inviting you to sit at my table. And when I look at my own life, I look and I know the darkness within me. I know the cruel nicknames that I can think up for people. I I know the way in which I can talk about people behind their backs accidentally. I, I know that I can be quite quick when it comes to putting other people down so it lifts me up. I know that there are two different types of people in the world. People who enter a room and says, here I am, and other people who says, there you are, and I'm a here I am person. I know that I'm not a naturally kind person. I'm kind of convicted by people who are. I am the kind of person who's a right person. Any other right people in the room? Yeah, you don't want to admit to it because you're right. <laughs> There's something good about being right and no one knowing it. But I'm a kind of right person. Even when I'm wrong, I'm right. I can argue anything, even when I disagree with it. I once kind of annoyed Sarah to the degree when I convinced that Jesus wouldn't know what to do if he was attacked by a polar bear. I didn't believe that, but it was fun to see Sarah squirm. I'm a really good right person. But my friend Dave, when we get into kind of discussions around controversial issues, Dave has this most annoying line, and he's totally right to use it. He says, Johnny, you're right, but you're wrong. And what he's saying is, he's like, yeah, you've, you've made that argument brilliantly. Well done, but you've helped no one. You haven't shown kindness. Kindness isn't at the expense of good theology. But unless our theology is tracked by the lines of kindness, it's not good theology. It has to be both. Because it's the spirit of who God is, kindness. We find it... um, well, actually, I've just done a, a, a recent study um, sort of asking people stories of why they've left church. I kind of put it out online because I was interested to hear stories of why that is and, and what reasons are there and what their stories are and, uh, and actually maybe how the church can help, but actually just to open up a dialogue. And I kind of put it out there expecting maybe four or five replies. Fifty people responded. And one of the extraordinary statistics that I kind of came out from that is uh, about 50% of the people who came back and said, listen, this is my experience of why I decided to step away from faith, wasn't theology. It was their experience of what they had in church. On the, on the complete opposite of that, I was speaking to someone called David, who's here uh, this morning, uh, and he said that actually when he walked into Coastline, there was a sense of smiles and warmth. Kindness can lead us to both directions. Kindness can lead us to both directions. Yeah, that's worth a round of applause. That's you. 
What does this kindness look like? Well, we find it uh, in the opening chapters of Ephesians. Again, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Uh, in ch- uh, chapter 1, verse 7, uh, it says that he is so rich in kindness and in grace. So rich in kindness and in grace that he bought our freedom. He bought our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. The things that we can't seem to get free from, he paid for. Why? Because he's rich in kindness. Why? Because we find it in just two verses beforehand in 1 Ephesians uh, chapter 5. It's going to be on the screen, I think. I think I sent it through. It says, All praise to God the Father, who, uh, Father for our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, even before he made the world, he decided to adopt us into his own family through Christ Jesus. And he did this because he wanted to, and it gave him great pleasure. He did this because he wanted to, and it gave him great pleasure. That final verse. Why did he do it? Why this disarming, awkward kindness? Because he wanted to. The Roman idea of adoption was extraordinary. Roman emperors from the second emperor, Augustus, decided uh, that instead of the firstborn son being the one that would carry the name, it would be an adopted son. It was a way of assuring that there would be a family line that would go down. At the expense of the firstborn son, there would be an adopted son who would carry the influence and the income. That's what the adopted son would hold. On the other side of things, if a child was born for whatever reason, it would be presented to the father of the household, and for any reason, the father could send it away, either to go to the marketplace or the dump. And there was pamphlets that we have written by a a, um, physician called Sonorous from Ephesus. And it's called How to Identify an Infant Worth Raising. And inside were measurements to decide whether infants who were left abandoned would be good for slavery or prostitution. And you can imagine these infants who had grown up never being wanted, never di- uh, always disbanded, always treated at the bottom, reading these letters, leading, reading these letters from Paul saying, listen, before everything, God decided to adopt you at the expense of the firstborn. That's the kindness we're invited to reflect. That's the inv- uh, kindness we're uh, invited to reflect. What does kindness look like? Let me tell you the story, one of my favorite stories from a guy called Dajrath Manjai. Dajrath Manjai grew up in India. Uh, he was um, one of kind of the outcasts uh, of society where he was, uh, and uh, kind of uh, seen as like one of the lowest castes of um, the, the system that they had there. And as a result, he lived in this community that was a 100-kilometer trip to get, safe trip to get to the nearest town. So in order to get to the nearest town, people would often take another trip, which would involve going across some absolutely treacherous mountains to shorten the journey. Mountains that would eventually claim many people's lives, including the life of his own wife at the age of 25. And as a result, Dajrath Manjai goes home and in his mourning and in his weeping, picks up his own hammer and chisel. His own hammer and chisel that he would have got uh, from his days in the mines. And he starts walking over towards the mountain where his wife died, and he decides to hit the mountain. And nothing happens, because it's a mountain. And then he hits again, and again, and again. And he goes home, and the next day he wakes up and picks up his hammer, and he goes to the mountain. And and perhaps sometimes, uh, this time, a few people see him and follow him, and, and he starts hitting the mountain again and again and again. From the ages of 26 to 48, until 1960, 
he chisels out a pathway through the mountain, one swing of the hammer at a time, cutting the distance from 100 kilometers to about 20 to the nearest hospital, saving countless people's lives. A road that would stretch 360 foot long, 30 feet wide and 25 feet deep. Why one swing of hammer, one swing of the hammer at a time? Now imagine Dajrath Manjai on day one of 8,060 where he wakes up and walks through and he hits the, the, the wall and, and nothing happens. Imagine him on day two or three where people come and start laughing and being like, oh, look at the guy who's completely gone delirious as a result of the grief of his wife who's died. Imagine day 4,030, halfway through the project and maybe he doesn't even know it, still hammering, still going, still going, knowing that actually something needs to be done. This has to happen. There's no other option. Imagine the last swing of the hammer as he knows he's done it, as he knows he's done it. That's what loving kindness looks like. It's one more swing of the hammer. It's one more swing of the hammer. It's deciding one more, one more, one more. Uh, earlier this week, one of the funniest stories I think I've ever heard happened. Um, my friend Mills, of whom many of you will know, part of Coastline Church, um, uh, she's just uh, effectively adopted two boys who have just lost their parents. Uh, and um, in the midst of the grief, in the midst of learning to be a mum for the first time and, uh, and just doing a phenomenal job uh, looking after them and giving them a happy childhood, um, one of uh, these boys comes up to Mills and says, uh, Mills, uh, these chickens that we've got that you've bought us, like these pet chickens, um, they need a birthday party. Now, I've spoken to parents before, and I know that the worst thing on earth are children's birthday parties, particularly organizing them. And so actually, Mills would have had every good reason to say, no, we're not doing a birthday party for the chickens. Instead, Mills sees the kindness in these boys' eyes and says, let's write a list. And so they start writing a list of the birthday things they're going to do for the chickens, and they start writing invitations to their friends to come to the chickens' birthday party. And just the other day, as I was on the way to the stag zoo, people came round to Mills's house, and they had a birthday party for three chickens. I'm talking past the parcel with a worm inside. I'm talking, like, cake for the chickens. I'm talking invitations writing out to other people, inviting them with chickens on the front, saying, we're celebrating the chickens. Mills saw the kindness in these boys' eyes and said, I want to be a catalyst. I want to be a catalyst for kindness that allows these boys to know, hey, I want your childhood to be happy. I want there to be love in the world. I want this to be good. Mills is one of those people who just lives in a way that convicts me as a not kind person, as thinking, because when I share stories on kindness, I haven't got stories of my own. I have to use other people's. And I look at that and I'm like, that's the one more swing of the hammer. It's one more swing of the hammer. It's one more swing of the hammer. It's one more birthday party for chickens. It's one more prayer for a sick child. It's one more being the person that everyone else assumes will. It's one more uh, vocal act of kindness. It's one more invitation to come around your house for food. It's one more knock on the door to make sure they're okay. It's one more delivery of a meal who perhaps for people who can't feed themselves. It's one more show of forgiveness. One more show of forgiveness for people who have shown you nothing but disrespect and dishonor. It's one more listening ear. It's one more my turn to buy the coffee. It's one more going to a boring trustees meeting, even though they run on because you know it's for something more. It's one more act of volunteering. It's one more pound out of the pocket for something bigger than yourself. It's one more invitation. It's one more text to check in. It's one more refusing to let go. It's one more swing of the hammer. It's one more swing of the hammer into a hand onto a cross that would be an invitation for us to be part of that would reflect the glory of God, not just as an attribute, but as a power, not as something that gains us into heaven or anything like that, but says, I have no other option because this is the character of God that he bestows upon me. That's the kind of kindness as a church we need to be known for.
for some of us, for some of us, maybe we've forgotten that, and there's a, a challenge there to think, hey, I want more of the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's great. For others of you, there's a level of, hey, I know that I'm kind of one of those right people. It's a burden that some of us must bear. But actually, there's something about it that actually convicts us of, but I'm not kind. It's not wrapped up in the way in which it's supposed to be. For others of us, if you're like where I've been, you kind of have an image of God that you've kind of grown up with and you've never really shaken. And and you kind of know the answers and you've been able to tell the answers and and you kind of know it's not the case. But in a realistic way, in in the way in which you approach God, in the way in which you feel when you come on a Sunday morning, uh, in in the way in which you uh, read the Bible and, and hear the stories of God, you have this image of who God is as an overbearing, weighty God, waiting for you to slip up, rolling his eyes. He loves you, but he doesn't really like you. That's not who God is. At the heart of his character, smack bang in the middle, is kindness. So I want to leave you with a question. And um, band, if you want to come up, and I think um, Charlie's going to come up and do some ministry, and we'll sing some more. But I want to ask a question. A question that's at the heart of what David asked. A question that should be a, a question that bursts out of us as we invite the Spirit of God in. Who is there? Who is there that I can show kindness to? Who is there that no one else would think about it? Where is it that I need to get creative? Where is it that I need to intentionally have a brainstorming uh, idea where I can start thinking of how is it that I can show kindness to people? Who is there that I can show kindness to? It's the heart in which we're supposed to be known for as a church because it's the heart of the character of God. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of what Jesus done for us. It's the heart of his character that's bestowed upon us. Who is there that I can show kindness to?